Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today, joined by Pastor Bo Olette for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. Bo, it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while, but super stoked to be on with you, Sean. And uh, just for the sake of those listening, uh, obviously this isn't the first time, nor will it be the last, that we've seen you on here, <laughs> but uh, what's your uh, background and involvement in our church, just so that people are familiar? Yeah, yeah, no problem. I've been serving um, as a minister at CCF with Pastor Scott Richards for the past 28 or 29 years now, so it's uh, it's been a while, and um, also started... Uh, around 15 years ago, a ministry called Running Light Ministries, and that's a ministry that just helps out those in the church that deal with sexual sin. Um, a kind of one of those topics where uh, a lot of churches don't really touch on that issue too much. And um, and so what I did 15 years ago is I thought, man, you know, I'm going to start this kind of ministry. Uh, I have kind of a interesting background, and uh, and it does uh, um, kind of bring up that subject. So uh, I really wanted to, in a sense, bring that subject to the forefront, talk about it from a biblical perspective, be able to offer um, classes and, and uh, groups for men, women, uh, wives groups, uh, and really get in the community and just kind of share uh, about uh, a biblical worldview when it comes to sex and sexuality. So um, I've also done that over the past 15 years, and that kind of led me into writing a book, and I've written a, a bunch of stuff now. Um, but uh, that's kind of uh, in the church. I do a lot of administration work, as you know, and uh, get a chance to uh, work really close with Scott on many different projects within the fellowship and uh, oversee uh, a lot of the, the the church. And so that's kind of my role here at CCF, but it's always fun to kind of put on the apologetics cap and hang out with you, Sean, and I've obviously I've known you since you were born, so it's a wonderful blessing to be able to just see you and see what God's doing in your life all the time, and uh, always excited about, uh, gosh, how God has used you and Peter and so many of the uh, next generation of ministers here at Calvary Christian, so it's awesome. Yeah, and you do a, uh, not every day, but daily in the same regard to this broadcast, uh, morning devotions, just yes. going through the Word verse mm -hmm. by verse. You do, again, you mentioned running light, but uh, any resources that you'd recommend or uh, publications? Yeah, I mean, there there is some publications I, I definitely would recommend to people, um, and one of them is just simply getting in your Bible, <laughs> you know, getting in your in the Word. Um, you know, you know, Peter Martin's done a great job with some of his uh, with his books that he's put out. I think those are great books um, to read. Um, you know, but there, I, I am a very um, simple person. I am one of those guys where I, I mean, of course, it's always good to grow in your understanding of the Word of God through authors like C.S. Lewis. I'm a big Blaise Pascal fan. Um, you know, uh, really grow intellectually, but you know, keep it simple. I'm a guy, Sean, as you know, that likes to just 
hey, let's just read the Bible, let's just go into the Word, and that's why I do the daily devotions like I do them, just go through the Scriptures. So, um, you know, if, if you want something to help you kind of get through some of the lustful areas of your life, you know, you can check us out at runninglight.org, that's running light, R-U-N-N-I-N-G-L-I-G-H-T dot O-R-G, and that'll get you to our website, and you can see um, that we do have material there that's available for people. We do online Zoom classes, like tonight I'll be doing an online Zoom class with guys, and so we'll get together. We go through some material. Some, it's all very scripture-heavy, and uh, really just work through talking about uh, uh, things that a lot of people don't talk about in the church, you know, but uh, it's good. It's, it's, it's super awesome, and you'd be surprised how many people— are just like you, or, you know, how many people struggle in very similar ways. And so that's that's kind of what I would recommend for people. I mean, there's many different ministries out there that are very good, and, you know, you can certainly go on uh, your search engine and just search up, uh, search, you know, uh, material for, you know, sexual issues, and you'll have a plethora of Christian uh, resources. I'm not sure all of them are good, you know, but uh, use but discernment. Yeah, use discernment. But you can check us out at runninglight.org, and uh, and that kind of thing. Our main point is better pleasure. That's why I wear a better pleasure shirt today. And the idea is come drink from the river of God's pleasure. Uh, that's what the Psalms say: drink from the river of God's pleasure. God is a pleasurable being, and He desires for us to know His pleasure above anything and uh, to see him as pleasurable. And so uh, that's our desire, really, for anybody who comes to our ministry, is that they would come to know God as the ultimate pleasure, and they would seek his pleasure above any other earthly pleasure. Yeah, we're not uh, saying no to lust. We're pursuing his love. That's right. So, again, if you have questions in that department as well, note the uh, informed are present. But if you want to also join on the Morning Devo with Bo-O, it would be on the same resource as our Facebook page where we are currently live streaming. Yep. So if you want to join us there, it's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you'll be notified when he is going live, as well as we, from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time for us and various times for you, depending on circumstances, but what's the preferred it's hour? It's mostly 9 in the morning, Monday through Friday, and they could check it out on my YouTube, too. It's Bo Willette. They could go there and, and check it out if, if they don't want to go to Facebook. But yeah, we've gone through the whole New Testament. We're in the book, finishing up Joshua tomorrow, and then we're going to do a devotion in the book of Judges. Oh, boy. Well, that'll be looking forward to that, but uh, noting the point, when we're uh, discussing YouTube as well, our page is a reason for hope, where we are also live streaming, and if you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, the one disadvantage of the uh, interwebs is that we are in the hands of people who aren't as consistent with their rules as we'd like them to be. Won't be the case on our website. If you go to calvarychristianfellowship.com and click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to ccf2son.online.church, where we are also live streaming, and of course, they can't ban us on our own platform. So keep us in prayer that we're faithful and available to be used by the Lord in this capacity, and that is, of course, to answer your Bible questions. Make sure that the questions are in the form of a question, that they are about the Bible and the substance of the answer, and of course, that they are sincere, meaning that you want to hear the answer. We won't waste time and, of course, want to... uh, 
go on endless rabbit trails that don't really amount to much. We want to make sure that these are the issues on your heart and mind. So feel free to send us your questions if they meet that criteria. Yeah, I want to. I want to just say that when I first uh, was interested in the Bible, uh, I was a senior in high school, and a apologetic radio show called it was a, a like a Bible Answer Man kind of show was really really impactful for me uh, at, at a young age. And if you know anybody that is interested in the Bible and they want to learn more about the Bible. I tell you, a, a, a show, a podcast like this is like one of the greatest places to really be challenged and really start thinking more seriously about the Bible. And so if it, it, obviously those that are, are listening right now, you guys are already in. You're like, man, I'm into it. But you might have a friend who's interested in the Bible as well. And, and, and some people who, like me, who never really read the Bible and just started reading the Bible, to hear someone answer questions of the, of, of the Bible was absolutely awesome. Because even though I never called that show, it seemed like someone always asked a question that I had, you know, in my mind. So it was really... Uh, awesome uh, uh, to to hear it. So I would encourage anybody just to you know share this uh, this podcast with people, and um, you know get the word out because these shows are awesome. They really are impactful, and I was very grateful to 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 listen to one all the time. And noting that that resource is available to all of you as well, before we get into any of it, what makes this worthwhile is God's involvement. So why don't we start off with a word of prayer and invite him to speak more than we do. Would you like to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. Father, we want to glorify your name uh, during this time. Uh, We pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would speak through us and that you would fill us full of your Holy Spirit. And uh, Father, we pray that in all things your love would uh, come across, so that you, our words would be grace seasoned with salt and uh, just a wonderful preservative for people, and that uh, uh, people would be encouraged in you, Jesus, and that your name would be uh, uh, just exalted uh, today during this show. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Uh, I guess following up on the trend, Isaiah has a question wanting to know, will we experience pleasure in heaven? Wow, that's a great question. And, and I'll say, I'll just read a psalm to, the, to uh, him, and I'm going to start off with Psalm 16. And uh, it's a great s- psalm. It starts off like this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Oh, oh, my soul, you have said to the, to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And it's interesting, you see words like delight. Uh, I love those words. But when you finish this psalm, it says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, and that interesting holy one, to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And as far as a formal definition of heaven goes, the most succinct way we can put it is in two words, with Jesus, with God. So in that fellowship, literally at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Hopefully that's a yes question. (laughs) Yeah, and it's interesting, because if you read Colossians 3, it says that at 
that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it very fascinating that here it says at the right hand are, uh, of God is pleasures. Yeah, or you know. the messianic title of Jesus, especially used in Isaiah, where it's referring to the arm of the Lord being yeah. made strong, and that being a reference, of course, to the Messiah. We know God the Son. Yeah. But the point being made is that when we're discussing these things, obviously, there's a lot of motivation that comes from pleasure in this world. There's a lot of uh, deviation yeah. <laughs> as yeah. well in the pursuit of those things. But the thing in and of itself isn't the problem. It's the heart that we bring to it. If I pursue pleasure at the expense of others or even the detriment to myself, the problem isn't the pleasure. It's the heart that's going after that as its goal. People can have the goal of world peace, but if their plans are to exterminate every ethnic group but your own to achieve it, that's the problem, not world peace. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that we clarify pleasure isn't the issue. It's the fact that this world has many ways of pursuing it, not all of which are, uh, I guess, in line with God's character. Yeah, and Psalm 115 verse 3 says, but our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases, whatever he pleases. And that's that's interesting because the word please is very much like the word pleasure. You know, when you're pleased with something, there is a pleasure to that. And God is pleased with things, meaning God's character is such that he experiences as a God pleasure. He is pleased. He sits in the heaven and does whatever he pleases. And and so, it, you know, we, we sometimes see God as kind of like this stoic, you know, and, and which is really sad because in the book of the New Testament book of Timothy, Paul calls God the blessed God, the happy God, you know, and that is, uh, sometimes people, it really throws people off that idea that God is blessed. He is happy, you know, because they tend to see God as this non kind of feeling feeling thing. thing. Yeah. You know, but uh, God has made us beings that experience pleasure. Why? Because uh, it points to a greater pleasure. Um, and uh, that's the, the wonderful creation of God, is when he creates something, he's creating it in his image, in his likeness. Yeah, reflecting his characteristics. And that's right. part of that is the ability to express emotions and satisfaction and peace are two of them. So noting those things as attributes of pleasure, it's not anything wrong. We just need to make sure that we aren't governed by something less than God, but knowing that he's the source of every good thing, James 1 says, including pleasure. Yeah, what I do find, um, was it Isaiah? Is that who who asked the question? Yes. Uh, Isaiah, what I do find a lot is that when you ask people, what do you think of when you think of pleasure? A lot of people think of secular things. So even within the church, if I asked people in the church, hey, what do you think when you think of pleasure? They automatically think um, lustful pleasures. Um, and, and that's sad because the Bible is always talking about the wonderful pleasure of God. You know, come drink from the river of God's pleasures. You know, and this is, this is that idea, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, Um, You know, God is a pleasurable being, and so we really got to get our minds focused uh, in the right direction when we hear that word pleasure. Get them off of that secular idea of pleasure and get them on the biblical 
idea of pleasure, which is pleasure is something we experience as a reflect, uh, as a, uh, in a reflective way because God is a God of pleasure and he creates us in his image. And so, you know, there's a lot of distorted pleasures that people think of when they think of that term pleasure. Right. So just keeping that all informed, uh, here's a question from Yari who wants to know, why did God strike Hezekiah with a sickness if he was a good king? Well, I guess that would depend if there is any text that says that God was the source, the cause, and of course the motivating factor behind that disease and not the cure of it. That's the first problem. But the second and even more important thing is on top of accusing God of something the text doesn't say, but noting the point that he was cursed with a sickness and he was a good king. Shouldn't good people never get sick? And we can deal with both. So let's start with what the text just plainly says. Yeah, as far as Hezekiah's sickness, it's in 2 Kings chapter 20 and Isaiah 38, both at the start of the chapters. Uh, this is 2 Kings 20. It says, in those days, what days? The days that, next word, Hezekiah was sick and near death. Any mention of God being the source or just people getting sick in a world and with bodies that can get sick? Continuing yeah, it, on. Yeah, kind of just you get the sense that he's just getting sick. Yeah, and note <laughs> this point. God doesn't say, I've done this to you because you were a good king and I'm just arbitrary like that, like Loki or whatever. He sends Isaiah <laughs> to tell him the outcome of the disease. Notice, he doesn't tell him, I'm the beginning of the disease. He tells him what the end of that disease will be, your physical By death. By the way. Is Loki like a, that's a, I'm thinking that's a Thor guy. That's a Norse mythological creature. Oh, okay. Got it. It's not technically a god, but that's a longer <laughs> story. Point being made is this, though. We go on to the chapter where Hezekiah is obviously sad about the fact he's going to physically die, and he prays that he wouldn't physically die from this. And, of course, when he is given an answer by Isaiah and saying, this is how you'll be delivered from the disease, that also came from God. When he is delivered from the disease, notice who he thanks, God. I don't see anything here about God being the cause of the disease, only the solution. So let's be very careful about that. But maybe Isaiah will give us some more prophetic perspective on the matter. In Isaiah 38, it says, just like in 2 Kings chapter 20, in those days, what days? The days of which the next word will clarify, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, it reads the exact same as 2 Kings. What's going on mm -hmm. here? Well, it doesn't mention what? God being the cause of the disease. It only mentions God being the solution. It doesn't mention God striking Hezekiah with this disease on account of anything he did, good or bad. And of course, it would be very dangerous for us to assume, oh, well, God's sovereign. He's behind every bramble bush and tumbleweed. So obviously, if Hezekiah got sick, this was because God directly struck him with it. No, things can just go wrong in this world. And God gave him information in order to see it in its proper context. Now note the question that usually comes up alongside this one is that when Hezekiah was ultimately cured from this disease, he was given another couple years of life, a good stretch of time, and made some serious mistakes during that time period. But yeah. what's interesting is that we once again ask, did God cause Hezekiah to make those mistakes or did he allow him to do something bad? Much like with the disease, things are allowed to go wrong in this world, but God is still there. God is still good. God isn't the cause of the problem. He is the solution. And this is a 
very dangerous mindset that people, especially people with a prosperity gospel mindset and background, get into when they say, well, God's job, his promise is for me to always be healthy, always be wealthy, always be wise. Therefore, if I'm not healthy, wealthy, or wise, it's not account of my foolishness in finances or in perspective. It's not account of my just physical frame being nothing but dust, the Psalms say, it ultimately comes down to the fact that, oh, well, I have two options. Either this approach towards God is a promise he's never made, and I'm holding him to something he's never said, or I'm the problem, that my relationship with God is on the rocks, because nothing bad's ever allowed to happen to someone as wonderful and perfect as me. (laughs) Notice the issue in rooting in pride. Hezekiah got sick. That's allowed. It happens to everybody. Happened to me two weeks ago. Wasn't, well, I am (laughs) sinning, but that's another issue. I am a sinner in need of grace, but it wasn't because of that. It was because of the fact that someone else in our congregation got something and I was working in close proximity to them. That's just something that happens. Now, note, could God have warned me? He could have, but I would sometimes just appreciate the fact that my immune system got stronger as the result. And even if I had physically died, then I'd be much better off than most people on this planet. So the point being made is that, Yari, be very, and I say this again with heavy, heavy emphasis, very careful with the assumptions we bring into the text. Mm -hmm. If someone gets sick, it's not because they sinned. If someone doesn't get sick, it's not because they were perfect. It's ultimately a reality in this fallen world. And if I'm going to ask questions about Scripture, make sure it's in the Scripture when I'm asking, why did God do something that the passage never says he did? Anything more to add to that? Um, no, I mean it, it's a, it's a great passage. It's neat. Um, I I I, um, I was um, kind of trying to figure out: Did Yari was Yari uh, attributing to God um, that God got him sick? Is that what it was? Is which and that this is the exact wording of the question: Why did God strike Hezekiah? And oh, I strike made the him! Point. And then, of course, yeah. with sickness, if he was a good thing, a good yeah. king. Well. Note the four false assumptions behind that, that God struck Hezekiah, that God struck Hezekiah with sickness, and that God struck Hezekiah with sickness being unjust, and God being struck in... God striking Hezekiah with sickness would be unjust because he was a good king. Yeah. That doesn't check out, not just in the text, but in general. It because It's because of a false assumption too many people bring to the passage, and we want to avoid that. Yeah, and I think we always have to remember, too, that in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, or in the book of Romans, it talks about that uh, sin entered the world through one man, and, and, and through that sin, death and that death comes through sin. It, it, has, it came through uh, the sin that happened all the way back in Genesis. Our separation from fellowship <laughs> with God, the source of everything good, results in the presence of things not good. That's right. So that's, that's what you're seeing. So when it says, in those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, that is, in the biblical narrative, meaning if you look at just the narrative from Genesis on throughout the Bible, um, it wasn't always like that. There was a time before sickness and death were on the scene. But as you go forward, obviously, from reading page one of Genesis, something happens. It's called the fall. And after the fall, then you start seeing this, this, this phrase come in all the time. And that is, 
and so and so died, and so and so died, and it just continues all the way throughout the Bible um, until we finally get to the book of Revelation, where we start seeing a full-blown reversal taking place. As far as our physical world as is concerned. As far as our physical world is concerned. So in the, in, in the biblical narrative, you're going to see this idea of was sick and near death. This is a continuation of the narrative from the fall. People die. And it, it's just, it's a reminder that we need to be saved, that there is uh, sickness and sin and death in this world. It wasn't created this way, but... That's why we don't like it. Yeah, but it is a product of our sinful rebellion, and this is why Jesus has come, is to, in a sense, reverse the curse, you know, uh, as I've heard that phrase before. All right. Um Boy, uh, got a question sent along to us from the elders joining us on Facebook. Hey, what's up, Scott? This uh, question <laughs> came from Callie, who wants to know what happened at the Council of Nicaea. Now, this is where it gets depressing. Did that council decide what the books of the Bible would be in the New Testament? Did they invent the doctrine of the Trinity there? Okay, before I get smarmy, uh, let me uh, get my, my like humility lenses going yes, and make sure that Sean, I'm clarifying yes. something here. Who is asking? Because that's very important in how we would all want to approach this question. Uh, obviously, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code has popularized this view, but no one within an inch of legitimate scholarship, and I by that I don't mean I call myself a scholar, I mean I know what I'm talking about, would say this about historical Christianity, let alone the Byzantine Empire's foundations. Uh, the Council of Nicaea, for those of you who don't know, was an event that took place in the 4th century AD, so around 300 years after Christ, where there was finally for the first time, and again this wasn't enacted by Constantine, but he further reiterated it when he took power, an edict of toleration, where up until this point, Christians were being literally systematically butchered for entertainment and for basically being labeled enemies of the state for one crime and one crime only. They would not pinch in a piece of incense to Caesar and say Kairos Kyrios. That's coming from a culture where your religious affiliations were in tandem with your legal views. And if you didn't hold to the religious views of a nation, they viewed you as an outlaw, someone who didn't hold to their values and was capable of anything. Now, obviously, they didn't care enough to ask, what are these new laws that you're bringing in? That was left to the politicians, and they would announce these are tolerated viewpoints in the empire. For example, the Jewish religion was tolerated in the Roman Empire, separate from Roman paganism, but it was cut off after a time when, of course, Trajan and Titus got tired of all the Jewish rebellions in opposition to pagan involvement and pagan, I guess, tense uh, heat, I guess, would be the social climate of Judea, the province that the Jews were living in, and they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Judaism was no longer a tolerated religion, so if Jews were to practice their religious rites in the Roman Empire, people understood that to be, oh, they're not obeying Roman law, they're obeying mm -hmm. Jewish law, and that would be frowned upon and even turned a blind eye to, sort of, if they were uh, ever accosted or robbed. And, of course, this is referenced in the book of Hebrews as happening to Christians as well. Why? Because Christianity hadn't been around enough yet for someone 
to inform the Roman government of what it was and whether it was in line with the Roman Empire. And then ironically enough, when Paul finally made his appeal to Caesar Nero, uh, you know his career, he didn't uh, respond positively. So the point being made is this. For around two to three hundred years, the Roman Empire was overtly hostile to the Christian faith, and so they had to go underground. Leading up to, and this was usually targeting the leaders of the churches to demoralize the congregations, but also for the congregations as well. Anyone who would stand up to these edicts or was caught would be sentenced to death, and this, of course, was the foundation for the mission statement at this time. People would look at these people willing to die for something they themselves had seen and something they themselves believe. And for this time period, people were beginning to admire that. The numbers of Christians grew in the empire till it became a point where the empire realized we got a problem here. Either we're going to have to recognize this as a solution or we're going to have to slay a third of our citizens. So the Edict of Toleration was passed. Again, there's attributing to, oh, there was a conversion experience and a vision. Take it all with a grain of salt. But Constantine, when he took power, was basically seeing the end of the previous administration's decisions, much like in the United States, and decided, am I going to uphold these or am I going to veto them? And of course, with the emperor, it was a lot more simple. He decided, I'm going to keep them. Um, There was a controversy going on at this time called the cult of Arianism. Arius, who was from Egypt in that time and era, um, basically came up with the idea that Jesus was not a created being, and that, or Jesus was a created being, rather, and that, uh, of course, he was the Archangel Michael, and going into tandem with all these bizarre handling to the passages, he was starting to make these teachings going on, and since up until this point in history you'd be killed if you, as a Christian, just existed, you couldn't host public debates and so forth. That just wasn't healthy. So when they were finally given the opportunity to act freely, there was a lot of contention between Christians arguing with these proto-Jehovah's Witnesses, if you will. So the Council of Nicaea was convened with the intention, and notice Constantine didn't host it, he didn't, you know, do anything more than provide the catering and the building. It was literally just <laughs> paid for... paid the fee. Yeah, he was the Christians sorting this issue out among themselves. He wasn't by any means a Christian yet. In fact, uh, according to some historians, we believe he converted to Arianism, but that's another issue. Constantine allowed this to be taken. He had heavy documentation and notes taken, which you can read online, called The Rudder. The full title is The Rudder of Ecumenical Councils. Don't ask me to spell it, because I can't, but the point being made is this. The notes that were taken exclusively discussed one topic and one topic only. There were issues and language and stuff on the side, but none of those issues were this one that you mentioned, the books in the Bible and the Trinity. Those were already assumed. What was being discussed was the deity of Christ, and it was because of one aberrant preacher in the entire Roman Empire, and two preachers, two bishops or overseers of churches that supported Arius in the Mm. face of literally everyone else in Christianity. And what was interesting is if you read the conversations that took place at Nicaea, the conversations were quoting the books of the Bible that we already recognize the New Testament, which means that these things were already understood and known for almost 200 years up until this point. There were questions about other books like the Shepherd of Hermas and so forth, but they were able to resolve those questions fairly quickly, even in their persecuted state, because 
None of them could be traced back to an apostle, and none could be tested according to the way Old Testament scriptures were tested, which we'll get into in a follow-through if you'd like. But when it comes down to it, that was the topic of Nicaea. It was the debate of Arianism. Was Jesus created? Was he a creation? Or was he creator and deserved all the prerogatives as such? Arius soundly lost the debate, and every single time that he you know, gave his twisted views on Scripture, it... Uh, well, it got heated so much so to the point there's a legendary tale. I, I'm completely in favor of it, if for no other than comedic reasons. Uh, Saint Nicholas of Myra, famous Saint Nick, Santa Claus, that guy, uh, he punched him in the face for his blasphemy. So mm. that, that all being fun there. The point being made is this. That is what happened at Nicaea. Santa Claus punched a heretic. They had an argument with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses before it was cool, and the Jehovah's Witnesses lost, but ultimately, because the issue wasn't resolved, it was refuted. Constantine sided with the Arians as the underdogs, and uh, mass persecution broke out against Orthodox Christians, where we read from church historians like Eusebius, the world woke up one day and found itself Arian. There is uh, an individual who we can mention by name if you have a follow-through question, who was pretty much the spearhead in debating against these views, and he, of course, was one of the names of the people associated with the creed that answered most of these issues soundly. But that was the topic of Nicaea. It had nothing to do with the Trinity that was already understood from the Bible, which, by the way, already existed at this time. If you want to read what happened at Nicaea, don't go to the movies, don't go to Dan Brown. They didn't know what they were talking about, or they were deliberately lying. But we have the notes historically from first-hand primary sources. Look up the rudder of ecumenical councils. You'll be just fine. Yeah, um, I, w I would always recommend people to read uh, St. Athanasius's book called The Incarnation. Um, uh, obviously, St. Athanasius, is ref he just referenced him. Alluded. Yeah, she just alluded to him. But uh, it, you, you certainly can, because the question is, did they invent the doctrine of the Trinity there? Wasn't even discussed. Yeah, and... and, and but St. Athanasius, you know, uh, in his book, The Incarnation, you'll get a really understanding of, um, of really the debate uh, between um, those that saw Jesus as being God and those that did not. But the idea of Trinity, uh, even Tolterian, if, if that name rings a bell in any... Some say Ter Tertullian. But. Tertullian, yeah. He was before St. Athanasius. And he, he, he more or less, as far as I understand it, coined that idea uh, or that term Trinity. Um, you can certainly look that up. And uh, I, I want to say, I can't, I can't remember exactly the time that he was around, but I think it's pretty much before St. Athanasius. Athanasius was around the 5th century AD. We also have references to the multiple persons within the one God by Gregory of Neo-Caesarea, who was 270 AD, a full 50-something years before Nicaea. And we also have Irenaeus of Lyons, who was around, around 180 AD, and he, of course, would have been uh, alive during the lifetimes of the original apostles' disciples, including Polycarp. Yeah, but the... But don't get, uh, let's not miss the forest for the trees. The most important reference to the Trinity is the Bible 
um, itself. We came up with a word to describe a doctrine that is laid out in Scripture. And if you want to join us on Wednesday night, uh, tomorrow at the time of this recording, it will be on July 20th, 2022. Uh, We'll be discussing the deity of the Holy Spirit. And before I do any of that, I'm going to make sure to carefully define the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, and and so so when it comes to, you know, the the idea of did they make, uh, did they... um, uh, what was the term? Did they coin uh, the phrase? Co- no, did they? Uh, uh, let's see. It says, "What did the council?" Uh, or you just missed it. What did the council of Nicaea? Did the council decide? I, I would. I would want you to think about it. Is no, they didn't decide what books of the Bible would be in the New Testament. They would recognize what books would be in the New Testament. Meaning. Already there were these books. It's not that they sat there and went, oh, well, let's, let's put this one in and this one's not. No, they already recognized things, but they had a, a test for something that was canonical. And that term canon, if you do a little research, the meaning of the term, it comes from the Greek word canon, which means uh, a measuring instrument um, or a rule of action. So the idea of a canon is something we measure something against something. You know, is this is it canonical? Does it, in a sense, pass the test? Does it measure up? And so when you look at what they were uh, seeing, recognizing as being canonical, if books were canonical, if they measured up, they were looking at you know evidence from the Old Testament itself. Um, references from the Old Testament, the law of Moses being authoritative, you know, were, were there books that were referencing uh, biblical sources, you know, so that was one thing that they recognized. Oh, there were books that, hey, they're talking about the books of Moses, they're talking about the prophets, those kind of things. So um, the prophets claimed to be speaking about or from God, and so that was another, in a sense, uh, test if something was canonical. Um, you know, we look at the New Testament and we see, hey, is it, does, is it the test of authority? So in relation to the Old Testament books, this meant having the authority of a lawgiver or a prophet or a leader of Israel behind them. In connection with the New Testament b- books, this meant having the authority of an apostle behind the books that were accepted into the canon. So when they recognize something as being canonical, they're looking at, hey, is this written by Paul, or is it written by someone who had authority within the early church? So, Someone who was witness to or knew a witness of Jesus himself. That's well, why you would be trusted had they performed miracles. Could they be tested under pain of death to back up the things that they would say? Yeah, so, so another test was the test of uniqueness. And this is to be taken uh, into the canon. A book had to show internal evidence of its uniqueness as an evidence of its inspiration. Okay, so it had to be unique. The test of acceptance by the churches. As the book circulated, they had to gain acceptance by the churches. So if it wasn't something that was already kind of in action, they weren't just going to be like, hey, we're going to accept this book. And note, who filled up the churches during the first centuries of Christianity? They were Jews who knew how to test Scripture, just like they did with the Old Testament. Yeah, they were looking, yeah, absolutely. So you keep going, um, the witness of an apostolic period, the writers witnessed that their own writings were the Word of God. They talked about 
uh, their their own writing as being the word of God. Probably one of the biggest areas of this is used in the book of Timothy that talks about all scriptures God breathed, and uh, you know, and even Peter talks about that. Peter in one of his writings talks about Second Paul's. Peter. Yeah, yeah, talks about Paul's writing as being scripture, um, and so we see that as another uh, kind of test. So, um, so there's, so I don't want you to, I mean, there's, there's a lot to, to go over with this, but I don't want you to think that, um, I want you to think of it more as they recognized books. They didn't just kind of, oh man, like, let's put this one in, let's put that one. No, these things were recognized already as books that were very unique and already had, um, the, um, in a sense, passed the test um, yeah, they didn't just decide one day like Uthman and the Quran. Okay, you got all these different versions. Here's the one I like. Burn the rest. Right. This was something decided a long time before these councils were convened. This was something decided according to the same standards we go back all the way to Moses with. And this is something p- clearly spelled out as a fair standard. You can be the judge of that or not. I don't really care. But the point being made is that in Scripture. Yeah, and and I would just say like coming from a when I was a. a certainly not a Christian, you know, sometimes I would use arguments like this, or I would think through things like this, like, man, I bet you just a bunch of mad monks, man, put it all together. And it was, but when you read the Bible, and this is why I, when I finally just went, I'm going to read the Bible. And when I read the Bible, it it certainly doesn't come off that way. Um, You know, put it this way, if you know the people. If if mad monks put together these books for they were some, the sanest monks I've ever seen. <laughs> That's right. They certainly, you know, the Bible paints a picture of human beings' depravity, and that God is literally hidden from mankind because of our sin, and that, uh, in a sense, there's a separation between humans and the deity. Um, meaning it doesn't bode well for human beings. It's not like a bunch of monks went in there and said, man, we're going to put together a book. It's going to be amazing, and we're going to make a ton of money. And, and No, they all got horribly <laughs> butchered and killed. <laughs> That's right. It, it really, really is not uh, uh, what you think. And, um, and uh, I certainly was pleasantly surprised. I was really in for a rude awakening when I read the Bible. It was much different than I ever thought. So let me know if that helps you out, Dad, and whoever was asking. But uh, just noting a little variation in the approach. If it's coming from an atheist, then you need to ask again, have you actually read the rudder in regards to Nicaea? Mm -hmm. If you're talking to a Muslim who made that accusation, you should hold them to the standards in their Quran when it says, oh, the Bible was invented at Nicaea. Uh, Hey, time out. Surah 3, 3 through 4 says that the Torah and the Gospel, the Old and New Testaments, are the word of Allah. Were those things invented at Nicaea, or were they revealed by Isa bin Miriam and Moses, the, however the Arabic would alternate on his name, as your own Quran says. You're making a claim about history that's not only false according to history, but your own religion. If you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, well, that's just irony upon ironies. They were debating you, not, of course, the uh, claims of the Bible, and I don't know why that would come up from a Jehovah's Witness, but we'll just throw it out there. If it comes from a Mormon, and noting their argument in the article of faith, the uh, Bible is true insofar it has been translated correctly, that that would be a major stepping-off point where Joseph Smith claimed the er the, Bible 
Bible was corrupted, many precious and plain truths have been lost from the Bible, according to Brigham Young, then you could just take them through the credibility of these men and say, does their claim line up with history and what actually happened? Because what's happening here, your proof for these articles of faith do not pass scriptural muster, or historical for that matter, because Joseph Smith clarified when that falling away happened, wasn't 200 years later, was right after the death of Jesus. We can go on and on, but the point being made is this. Know your audience, know the actual issues, and also note their issues that also come up when they bring this up, because many abound. Uh, here's a great, great, great question from Nina. I'm just going to read this passage, and then you can expound if you will. Sure. But her question is regarding the curse being affecting all of creation and Hezekiah and all that. Yeah. Uh, why was all of creation cursed and not just Adam and Eve? That's not really fair. Why couldn't Adam and Eve just get sick? Well, let me read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through the rest. Uh, this is right after Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11, if you remember, the in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for a good man some would die, perhaps some would even uh, for a good man some would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So noting how we've been saved. Hmm. It says in verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, that's what you mentioned, right? Yeah. And thus death spread to all men, notice why? because all sinned. So not just the fact we're related to Adam and we just got the short end of the stick. We've all chosen to sin and thus all join in the penalty. He notes in verse 13, parenthetically, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, held against you, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. We didn't all go to the Garden of Eden and eat the fruit. But notice this, Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Now, what is that type, Nina? Follow along with Paul's argument. As he's building this up, it's going to be really interesting. He says in verse 15, but the free gift, notice that, the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded to many, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, a right relationship with God, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's obedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And he goes on from there. So mm. what's the case Paul's building here? Yeah, it seems to, he, he's talking about a subject called, we'd like to, call headship a lot. And uh, I mean, explain that idea of headship. All right. So if Adam is the head of all of those who sinned, mm -hmm. there's a system where it could work both ways. If we're all condemned by our head, could we all be forgiven by our head? 
Yeah. So how do we accomplish that? Do we all have to become our own heads, or do we choose a head that's worth following who can result in our forgiveness? Yeah, and I don't think this is so weird in the sense that a lot of us are, in a sense, underneath a headship even today, even in society, you know, and, and you know, we all suffer for what leadership does, mm-hmm. you know, so no matter what the head is doing, um, you know, you you deal with it. You have to deal with the consequences of it. Maybe e- today, Egypt suffered for the actions and stubbornness of Pharaoh. A nation's gas prices suffer because of the policies <laughs> of right. their president. Maybe we're feeling it more today than ever. Yeah, you yeah. know, but you we're know, not. Ha- well, actually, yeah, we are. I'll I'll rescind that yeah, before so I make it. People go to war. People die, like in battle, not for decisions that they have personally made, but because of a headship. You know, and and so this is not something that's odd and it shouldn't be odd to us as just people who live day to day. All of us have to deal with this kind of idea of authority. And God gave Adam this authority. And so this is what the scripture is pointing out very clearly. And you might we might be bummed at it and go, well, man, why, you know, and it's a good question, you know, why did God, you know, why is God, you know, put in, why is he reckoned or charged um, uh, everybody sinners underneath Adam? Because it's you a know? system that works both ways. Yeah, that's right. It's and, and then you don't see it as good until you get to, to the salvation part. And this is what the apostle Paul makes so beautifully clear is that, boy, isn't it glad that we have a head for our salvation, that through one man salvation could come, and that you don't have to die for, in a sense, to pay your own, you you know, if you were going to pay for your own sin, um, that would be pretty tough, you know? And and, and the thing is, is you can never do it. You can never pay for your own sin, you know? Jesus being the head... He not only is able to pay for our sins, but he's also able to, the big word is impute, give us righteousness. So just as Adam, as our head, gives us the sinful condition that we find ourselves in, Jesus being our head gives us a righteous condition before the Father. And so that's why it's awesome to have uh, this kind of headship. Um, yeah, we're under the headship of, of Adam, and we have all sinned in Adam, and we all have received the penalty of the curse of the fall. It's called having a body. But through one man, we all have received a right standing by faith. And that's called the who? The Holy Spirit. That's right. We've all received that right standing, which is beautiful. Under Jesus, under one person, we receive a right standing, his right standing. So just as he is righteous before the Father, so we now have that right standing as children of God, as those who have put our faith in Christ. So you can see the parallel, right? Just as everybody's under Adam is right under, right with him, along with him in sin. So those who are with Christ were we're seen as righteous. We're seen as made right. So it's it's a beautiful doctrine, and you might want to look up the imputation of sin and 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 the imputation of righteousness and study those ideas. 
and uh, just so you really understand the beauty of it. Um, again, this shouldn't be a, a, an odd concept to you because all of us are under under headship. All right. Um, question from a Denny who wants to know, is James talking about the anointing oil in verse 14 of James 5? Does he give that as an imperative, as something must be done on all the sick? Thanks. Not exclusively the sick, Denny. Let me go one verse prior, and we'll continue on into verse 18. We'll note the whole topic of what he was bringing up. This is James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? That's broad. Let him pray. So this is what's going to set the tone for the topic that's going to continue for this entire section. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Notice, not the oil, the prayer. And note, he goes on to emphasize this. And the Lord will raise him up, not the oil, the Lord. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Man, he's using that word a lot. And you, that you may be healed. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed, again, let me know if I'm being overbearing, and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. So throughout the entire section of scripture where he brings this up, we can focus on the practical and miss the principle. James is giving a, or an, let me get my phonics right, instruction regarding conduct in the church, and it's all centered around prayer. Now, obviously, cheerful moments, sing songs, expressions of gratitude and reflecting on the glory of God. But if you're in a place where this world more often than not finds ourselves, say you're in Hezekiah's shoes, and you do what he did, what was that? He prayed to the Lord for mercy, for more life. He was given it. Why? Well, because that would fit in with the will and the purposes of God. Now, people don't always get the prayers answered, at least not in the way that they want to, which is yes, but the point of emphasis that James is making isn't that the oil, or even necessarily the prayer, is what is doing this. It's all accredited to the audience. And this is what we emphasize often on the broadcast. When people are praying, they oftentimes say, okay, so how do I get what I want? Do I like put my hands together upward, or if I do it down, will I have the opposite result? That's a Peanuts cartoon, by the way. No, it's talking to God. It's communication. It's fellowship. It's a relationship with the greatest source of solutions the everything has ever known. So if I take a step back and ask, what am I going to God to do to function as my own personal Santa Claus, or am I asking in light of the relationship that's already happening, I would like this, but as Jesus modeled for us, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When is it not God's will for our sins to be forgiven? When is it not God's will for us to seek fellowship with him? Now here's the tricky part. When is it not God's will for us to get better? Maybe when it's time for us to come home. And that's the point that's being made. That's in his prerogative, not ours. But James gives the example of the prophet Elijah, who is in the book of 1 Kings, who made an interesting example for us where the things he pursued in his fellowship with God had physical consequences here on the earth. And that's what point he's making. The church's responsibility 
among other things, is to instruct in righteousness, to not only give an example, but a reliable and honest instruction of how to pursue a relationship with God. And prayer is how that is done. And it's an answer to sickness, not just for healing, but also for perspective. There can be miraculous healings, but we see in Scripture that that exclusive interpretation doesn't fit. However, when it comes to restoration of sins, that always happens. When it comes to lining up with the purposes of God, like Elijah wanted to judge Israel for its sin, that did as well. The purpose of prayer isn't to get what we want, it's to align our hearts with what God wants. It's that relationship. So in communication and the purpose and goal, and we got about a, a minute and a half, is there anything else you'd want to note about prayer for a Denny before we have to sign off? I would just say oil, James is a very Jewish book. James was a Jew. And, um, you know, when you think of oil, you know, remember it says Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness. Very Old Testament idea, the idea of oil and anointing and joy and, um, you know, comfort. So uh, sometimes we read a little more into these areas than really need to be. I think if we were probably hanging out with James and, you know, in Jewish culture, it would make much more just practical sense. Yeah. So note those things in line with the sacrifices and stuff, but what was always accompanied with the anointing of oil is the pouring on of the Spirit, yeah. God's personal involvement in your lives. So let us know if that helps you, Adeni. Thank you all for the questions. We got about 30 seconds, so maybe we can knock one more Go out for it, here. Go um, What are the origins of the creepy, this is from Don, fire tunnel? Uh, the fire tunnel, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a more Pentecostal thing, but usually found among the NAR denomination, New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, not a church we'd recommend, and we'll go more on that tomorrow, But when you'll be joining us, by the way. Yeah, we could talk a little bit about that. But the fire tunnel, basically, they just uh, line up uh, two rows of people who are in leadership, deacons, elders, and so forth, and they'll just lay hands on you as people are walking through. I had a similar experience in uh, karate and ROTC. You know, you'd walk through the, the gauntlet, <laughs> and they'd uh, slap you on the way. Not a biblical practice, but not a satanic one either. Just make sure that if you do anything in the church, it can be tradition, it can be all well and good and fun if it's emphasizing prayer, but if it uh, makes the people around you weirded out, or if it's contrary to things in the Bible, keep your distance. If you find it creepy, then just make sure you're ministered to somewhere else. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.